Today's Dhamma talk is entitled Wisdom Part 2, and we shall explore some further general aspects relating to wisdom, and then we shall look at one particular aspect of wisdom, and that has to do with knowing or understanding the causal relation that governs mental and physical phenomena. Now, it is said in the Iti Wutaka that among all beings, the Buddha is the most noble, and among all physical and mental phenomena, it is wisdom, Panya, that is most noble. And why is this? Because when wisdom is accomplished, then all wholesome dhammas are accomplished. And this very much ties in what was said yesterday, that namely when the mental factor of wisdom is present, then all of the other wholesome mental factors will also be present all of the you know, beautiful you know, mental factors will be present. And it is furthermore said uh, that among all you know, dhammas that contribute uh, to the realization of Nibbana, it is certain uh, you know, wisdom or panya that is most noble. And the other factors are the followers of uh, wisdom. Now, <clears throat> When we acquire wisdom, then this leads to happiness. It leads to peace and happiness. And the Venerable Sadhu Pandita frequently mentions that when one is mindful, then this leads to a protection and hence you know, the mind is protected against the attack by mental you know, defilements. As a result of this, certain uh, sense of security is uh, you know, there, and uh, uh, this uh, you know, then uh, will you know, lead to you know, freedom you know, from bondage, vimutti, you know, and uh, this in turn leads to you know, peace and uh, you know, finally you know, happiness. Now, there is a strong connection between wisdom and virtue or an ethical conduct. And one can say that, for instance, with the development of one's Satipatthana meditation, the mind will be purified more and more of the unwholesome mental states. And uh, with the attainment of the third you know, path of enlightenment, namely Anagami Magga, with this comes a total eradication of sensuous you know, craving or greed and uh, loba and hatred, dosa. And once these two are gone, there is no longer a motivation to take life, uh, to well, torment, to harm, to injure, and nor is there a motivation to take what is not given. Hence, naturally, naturally, you know, the first and second precept will be you know, kept. Now, since the you know, driving force behind you know, breaking or you know, driving force that might otherwise lead to a transgression is simply not present anymore. And the commentaries certainly say, commentary to the Samyutta Nikaya says with regard to the attainment, already the attainment of the first path of stream entry, namely with this, comes, or with this, a meditator no longer. Uh, breaks or violence violates the five precepts, nakopenti, pancha, zilam. And 
Um, in other words, one uh, has no more interest in transgressing you know, one's uh, precepts, bringing harm you know, to oneself uh, nor to you know, others. And the texts uh, describe the relationship between wisdom and uh, virtue in the following uh, way. Namely, when one wants to uh, wash one's hands, then this is best done with just one single hand or with both hands. (laughs) Obviously, with both hands. We do it every day, several times. And uh, trying to wash one's hands, uh, just one hand at a time without the help of the other hand, is kind of uh, difficult and uh, also difficult to imagine. So, just uh, for a person who spent the day outdoors and walking around bare feet and maybe walking across some field or so, such a person will have dirty feet. And um, then... The common way of cleaning one's feet would be, well, to use some outdoor tap, tap of water, and then does one clean one foot at a time, or does one need both feet for this? (laughs) Well, the same story. Namely, one foot is being cleaned with uh, the other. At least this is the way the feet are being cleaned in Asia. And you might do it differently here, this I don't know. Uh, (laughs) And so so anyway, anyway, this uh, twofold illustration here is an illustration for the relationship between Sila and wisdom. And the with Sila, one purifies one's wisdom, and with wisdom, one purifies one's Sila. A possessor of virtue is said to possess wisdom, and a possessor of wisdom is said to possess virtue. And so these two go hand in hand. And we can say the more we practice, the more our sila will be purified. So the more wisdom arises, the more it will contribute to pure, morally pure conduct. Now, there is a further obvious connection between uh, wisdom and uh, faith and confidence, banya and uh, sadda. So what happens is that um, with every insight knowledge gained in the course of one's uh, meditation, one's faith will be strengthened. So one practices hard, one is mindful from moment to moment, this will lead to some to a strengthening of concentration which in turn will lead to the arising of the next or of some aspect of wisdom and possibly even the next intuitive insight knowledge and once the next insight knowledge has been gained a meditator realizes wow things are really happening and so things are happening as uh, explained in the text, as explained uh, you know, during the discourses. So uh, oh, the meditation practice is not just uh, a matter of imagination, but uh, rather of uh, something that is truly happening. And so and then uh, with a new insight knowledge uh, that has arisen, one feels more confident about one's practice. One comes even to a certain confirmation. Yes, indeed, this is working. And one then feels a strong desire to continue with one's meditation, to even try uh, harder. And the desire to practice further will lead to... You know, the exertion of more effort, uh, this in turn you know, will help to 
you know, make one's mindfulness more you know, continuous or more sustained. This will have an impact on the concentration, which will improve further, and uh, ultimately it will lead to uh, the arising of the next insight knowledge after uh, a couple of days of uh, practice. And this, in turn, then uh, leads to uh, the arising of further increased uh, faith. And it keeps going on like this. Now, and before we undertake intensive meditation practice, we may have very little faith in the whole thing. And we may or may not really believe that this is working as described. Um, So at first, at the outset, our faith tends to be somewhat certainly shaky and uh, somewhat uh, weak, and uh, it definitely needs to be nurtured or nourished. Now, as a meditator practices for a longer period of time, just like all of you here, several several weeks, then uh, gradually... Uh, starting from a maybe still somewhat weaker faith, gradually in the course of the practice, one's faith will increase more and more. Naturally, in between, there'll be when things are going somewhat, um, in a, somewhat not that smoothly, you know, then maybe you know, the faith will temporarily drop a little bit. Oh, is it really working? Um, but you know, then overall, you know, the faith will be uh, increasing. And so, with which experience does uh, a meditator, uh, or yeah, is the meditator said to gain unshakable faith? Sotapanna, yes, is correct. So with the attainment of uh, the path of uh, stream entry, which is the first uh, level of enlightenment. And once this experience has taken place, and with this also the Four Noble Truths have been fully understood, with this one faith becomes unshakable. And even if some highly skilled orator comes along and talks badly about meditation practice and just says, oh, this is just a waste of time, you could be doing much more uh, or much more beneficial things, that one will no longer be influenced by such talk. Now, to give you a story in uh, this connection of shakeable and unshakable faith. Many years back when I lived in uh, Burma, the uh, Burmese uh, government uh, invited two uh, foreign monks uh, and uh, the, or invited, sorry, uh, invited the most senior monks uh, of, of for the Burmese Sangha, namely members of the so-called uh, Mahanaika Sangha, state Sangha, and so representatives of uh, the Sangha, plus uh, then you know, two foreign uh, monastics, and I happen to be one of them. And so we were invited along on a 12-day trip to you know, the so-called Qin state, which is a, a state you know, that it's a frontier state, and uh, it borders onto India. Now, it is a state in which uh, Christianity is well developed. A very high percentage of uh, you know, the population uh, is uh, or believes in you know, Christianity, and this has to do you know, during the times of uh, British. Uh, uh, colonial rule, uh, the British missionaries went to those uh, you know, frontier states, just like the Qin state, but also a number of other you know, frontier states, and then you know, you know, spread uh, you know, Christ- mostly Christianity there. Whereas in the central part of Burma, you know, Buddhism uh, was, uh, was and still is the most predominant uh, religion or denomination. Now, 
And so the experience among the the Buddhists in in the Qin state was that whenever whenever some Christian missionary would go to some village somewhere in the countryside and then give a sermon on Sunday and on top of this maybe also distribute some money or make an allocation for some water project or some educational project or whatever, then the entire village would then become Christians. And then maybe a few weeks later, a Buddhist missionary monk would go to the same village and give a a fiery, inspiring Dhamma talk. And by the end of this, the the entire village would convert to Buddhism. (laughs) And, And then which was great for a while, uh, but of course uh, things are impermanent. And so, so this Buddhist missionary monk uh, wouldn't uh, stay around forever, and uh, so he would go uh, his ways. And uh, then after a while, again, some other you know, Christian missionary would come, maybe of a different de- denomination. There are plenty of different denominations there, uh, a whole variety of uh, Christians, uh, Christian beliefs. Uh, and they all set up their own you know, churches. It's quite amazing. So anyway, then comes another Christian missionary. Again, he also gives some sermon on Sunday and plus some financial aid for the children and so on. And the entire village population again is uh, or converts to Christianity. So what you know, this behavior then you know, reflects is uh, a rather shaky faith. And uh, sometimes like this, sometimes like that. And basically, following where the money is. And um, naturally, when we're poor, we'll uh, we'll accept whatever belief system comes along as long as as it is accompanied by some financial resources. And however... There was um, one Burmese uh, Buddhist monk and actually a disciple of Dongpulu Sayadaw. And Dongpulu Sayadaw has been to the States, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the late uh, 70s. And um, this uh, Buddhist uh, monk set up a meditation center in, um, in a place called Minta which is in the south of uh, the Qin state. And he was very well aware of the shaky faith of uh, the Qin ethnic people. And he related that when the Qin people came to his monastery for intensive practice and uh, would stay for a longer period of time and practice intensively, and sooner or later gain the Dhamma, a tremendous change would take place. And what do you think the change is? Hmm? Solidity. Solidity. Ah, in terms of faith. Yes, indeed. And so upon the realization of the Dhamma, their faith would become unshakable. And so... even though some you know, Christian missionary you know, would appear on the scene, yet you know, such a meditator, Qing meditator, would no longer be swayed you know, by his or her uh, great uh, talk. And so, um, this really you know, drives home you know, the point about... Uh, you know, this uh, shakable and unshakable you know, faith. So when we practice gradually or in the course of our meditation practice, our faith in you know, the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha and the meditation itself you know, at a certain point becomes uh, unshakable. And this then makes a big difference for you know, the future. 
Now, with regard to, to both faith and the wisdom, uh, there uh, is a connection here, namely both of these figure as one pair of, uh, uh, of controlling faculties, and uh, this pair of controlling faculties needs to be uh, well balanced. And it says in the text uh, you know, that the two controlling faculties of faith and uh, wisdom are praised by the wise only uh, when they are well balanced, neither in excess nor in deficiency. And in the development of the faculties, faith and wisdom are to be balanced to, ad- to avoid the extremes of blind credulity, so uh, blindly just uh, believing something to be true, and intellectual cleverness. And neither of these will work. So when we practice, we don't just want to believe everything uh, that is being said, but we should still subject it to uh, our Uh, our own experiences, whether it conforms to our experiences or not, and we should uh, not uh, just uh, then question everything or or, uh, approach the Dhamma in an intellectual manner which uh, involves uh, just intellectual cleverness and uh, there's no way that we can realize uh, the Dhamma uh, in, uh, in, in this way. Now, a further connection exists between wisdom and certain concentration, samadhi. And the Buddha has said, as is recorded in Dhammapada verse 372, nati jhanam apanyasa panyanati ajayato yamhi jananca panyancha sa we nibbana santike which means there can be no concentration in one who lacks wisdom. There can be no wisdom in one who lacks certain concentration. He or she who has concentration as well as wisdom is indeed close to Nibbana. Now, the second part is more obvious. There can be no wisdom in one who lacks concentration. So let's say you're practicing Vipassana and your effort is somewhat of an intermittent intermittent nature. So kind of on and off, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. As a result of this, the mindfulness will also be kind of of a stop and go affair or on and off affair. And so as a result of this, the concentration at times is there, at other times is not there. Now, when the concentration is not there, then the mind is not unified, it's not collected, then how can you possibly penetrate the nature of, uh, let's say, an extremely refined object? So this is impossible. Wisdom, as a result, cannot arise. So in the absence of concentration, wisdom cannot arise. And in the case of the jhana practice, the samatha meditation, we need a certain amount of initial wisdom to choose the jhana practice, and only then will concentration arise as part of the training in the absorptions. And so if we don't have a basic, you know, the, a basic wisdom that understands the necessity of uh, developing the mind, uh, be it you know, through samatha meditation or through you know, vipassana meditation, then we won't do any of you know, those, and so, you know, thus you know, the mind will not be uh, you know, developed in any you know, way. So. The arising of concentration does uh, pre, 
suppose or require the presence of some amount of wisdom, at least some amount of initial wisdom. And indeed, when both of these mental factors are present, namely concentration and wisdom, based on concentration, based on effort, based on faith, then, and also based on the remaining enlightenment factors, then indeed uh, Nibbana can be gained when the necessary conditions are there. Now, when we undergo the meditation of, uh, or Satipatthana meditation, then, as already mentioned yesterday, our meditation will not unfold in a haphazard manner, but rather it will unfold in a rather systematic manner, and there are sorry, different ways of uh, testing this or uh, checking this. Now, even if you don't believe in the seven purifications or the 16 insight knowledges or any kind of other classification that describes the development of uh, wisdom over time, yet you will surely accept your own experiences. And over time you will see that what happens or the way you well observe objects and come to know the nature of objects at the beginning of the meditation, of a meditation retreat, and then during the middle period of your retreat and then towards the end of your retreat is not the same. And obviously, a certain progression is there. Your understanding deepens more and more if, uh, and I'm assuming, that you're practicing properly, diligently, wholeheartedly, respectfully, and with continuous mindfulness and uh, restraint of the senses and so on and so forth. Now, so one can take one's own practice as one way of uh, checking whether uh, there is really some development in one's meditation or not. Another way of uh, checking this is simply by collecting information, all the information, all the data given by or reported by meditators during interviews. And this, for instance, has been done in the Mahasi tradition over many decades. And so, since you know, there are many meditators you know, there at the main center, but also in other you know, branch you know, meditation centers, so meditators come, you know, they practice, they give their you know, reports during interviews. The material you know, that they report certainly gets written down, and then gets certain conden- compared and condensed, and what remains is a certain, or what evolves from all of this, is a certain structure and uh, a certain development of uh, a meditator's uh, practice becomes apparent. So this would be another way of uh, um, verifying whether really something is happening in whether one's meditation is progressing in a haphazard manner or in a systematic manner. Then, as a third way of uh, verifying all of this is to then consult relevant textual uh, or evidence such as the Visuddhimagga, such as the Patisamida Magga, the path of discrimination, which is attributed to Sariputta, and such as a number of Dhammapada verses, plenty of discourses by the Buddha that speak to different aspects related to our meditation practice. And when we look at uh, the Visuddhimagga, uh, then we find 
a classification system there known as the seven purifications. And as part of those seven purifications, we find uh, uh, the 16 insight knowledges mentioned and uh, uh, even thoroughly described. Now, what one can do then as a meditator is to, uh, maybe after one's retreat, to see whether there is a connection between one's own experiences and what is being described in the texts. And most meditators find, after a while of practice, that there is a tremendous resemblance between one's experiences and what is being described in the relevant texts. Maybe sometimes in the text more is described because it covers uh, even deeper levels of uh, maybe the same insight knowledge, but deeper levels that become accessible uh, with uh, uh, more advanced uh, practice. And uh, so we have three different ways of uh, verifying whether one's uh, meditation is progressing in a haphazard manner or in a systematic manner. And can you think of still some other way? Behavior, yes. The behavior of the person, whether there are any changes in his or her behavior. That's what you want to say. Is correct. Pardon me? Oh, the teacher. The teacher, so how's this? <laughs> oh, oh, whether the teacher tells you you're having progress or not. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> and apart from this, still a further way, faith. Oh, whether one's faith has become unshakable or not. By me? Yes, right, okay. And now, apart from all of these correct answers, still some more. Venerable Viranyani, you, <laughs> uh, you're a scientist <laughs> by training. So, And what about scientific research? Scientific research done on meditators and IMS. IMS was a place where this was done in the late 90s. People like Dr. Daniel Brown and Dr. Jack Engler and Ken Wilbur, well, they... They came to IMS during a three-month retreat and subjected some of the meditators to various tests, such as the Rorschach test and then the, what was it, the stroboscope lamp test and then also some question and answers and so on and so forth. And what these scientists found was that there's a strong relation between or a link between what meditators practice and the way they, for instance, respond to a Rorschach test and the way they um, answer certain questions and the way or what they see in uh, in the stroboscope uh, lamp uh, in which uh, well, flashes of light are being emitted or produced uh, at varying speeds or various speed speed and duration. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, last fall, uh, some further uh, scientific uh, research was done on uh, meditators uh, at uh, the uh, IMS inside or at the retreat center. And this time, the lead researcher uh, was uh, Dr. Richard Davidson from uh, the uh, University uh, of uh, Wisconsin, um, yeah, man, um, Madison, right, and the so-called Keck Laboratory, and so, 
Uh, so, uh, when looking, you know, when looking at certainly some of the you know, the findings of uh, modern you know, neuroscientific research, we you know, see uh, that, uh, again, you know, there's a strong relation between uh, what happens in the meditation practice and uh, then how this uh, you know, changes or how this uh, shows up in um, magnetic resonance imaging um, scans and uh, how it changes uh, you know, the you know, structure uh, of uh, the mind. Now, so we have all these certain different you know, ways as certain, you know, evidence you know, that really something is happening in the practice and that we're not just sitting there and uh, imagining uh, the rising and falling to be sometimes soft and other times hard and tight and unpleasant and so on. Now, the sometimes suddenly the question gets asked whether the Buddha has himself you know, given any discourse that describes uh, the you know, 16 insight knowledges? The answer to this question is no. He has not given uh, a full discourse on this, but there is a discourse known as the Ratavinita Sutta, which um, it's the discourse on uh, the relay chariots, uh, which covers a discussion you know, between the Venerable Sariputta and uh, the Venerable Punna Matinata or so. And so, during this discourse, it is uh, the you know, Venerable Sariputta who asks you know, whether the uh, practice of meditation is undertaken uh, with the purpose of bringing about you know, purification of virtue. And to this, you know, the elder, Punnamatanibuddha, um, uh, answers no, uh, this is not the case, but for more than this. And then the elder Nasariputta goes on to ask, well, is you know, the purpose of meditation to bring about purification of the mind? And again, a negative response from the other elder. And it then goes on, uh, elder Sariputta asks whether you know, the practice is undertaken for the purification of you, you know, for the purification by overcoming doubt, for the purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and not the path, and then you know, whether the practice is done for the purification by knowledge and vision of the way, and finally by purification by knowledge and vision. And these are the seven purifications which uh, cover um, or among which the 16 insight knowledges are you know, distributed. And in all seven cases, you know, the answer by Venerable Buddha Matanibuddha is in the negative. And then at the end, he says, the purpose, the ultimate purpose of undertaking you know, the meditation practice is for the complete cessation uh, of um, complete cessation without grasping. And the complete cessation without grasping refers to the complete cessation of mental defilements without any grasping uh, remaining behind. And so this complete uh, destruction or cessation of uh, mental defilements without certain remainder is a reference to the attainment of Nibbana. So when, you know, the ultimate goal is nothing other than the realization of uh, the state of peace. Now, the Purification of virtue is certainly simply done 
you know, by observing you know, the precepts, by you know, observing right certain livelihood, and uh, you know, then also you know, by restraining you know, the senses, and certainly by you know, making you know, good use of or proper you know, use of uh, the four you know, requisites. Now, the purification of mind, in essence, has to do you know, with the overcoming of uh, the five hindrances, and this is done you know, through the suppression uh, you know, by way of uh, you know, concentration or with the help of concentration. And then the purification of view, deity visuddhi you know, corresponds to the knowledge or aspect of wisdom that we discussed yesterday. And yesterday we discussed what? Mind and matter is correct. Namely, you know, to discern mentality from materiality, understanding that both of these are not you know, the same. And uh, this uh, understanding uh, then leads to um, the fact that uh, one uh, or, or with this understanding, one realizes that there is no permanent uh, self. Now, the next uh, purification uh, is that of the purification by overcoming doubt, kankavitarana visuddhi in the Pali scriptural language, and this corresponds to the next, namely the second insight knowledge. And so today you know, we shall you know, deal you know, with that one to some extent. And this purification by overcoming it, no doubt, uh, is achieved by um, observing the same physical and mental phenomena over and over again. And in doing so, one then gradually comes to you know, realize that certain, all of these you know, physical and certain, you know, mental formations do not arise in a haphazard manner or without a cause, nor you know, do they you know, arise by uh, some or because of some hypothetical uh, cause. Now, from a practical point of view, a meditator may gain an understanding into you know, cause and effect you know, through you know, realizing that a pain arises somewhere in the body, the pain gets stronger and stronger, and sooner or later some aversion arises towards you know, this pain. Now, in this, the pain is the, is the cause and the arising of aversion would be the effect or the result. And here we have a physical phenomenon, namely a rupa phenomenon, the pain, which is the cause or condition and the arising of aversion is a mental phenomenon, so nama, a nama phenomenon, and uh, this is the result or the effect. So this would be one case for you know, the category of uh, causal relations that can be characterized by a physical object being the cause and the result being a mental uh, object. Now, we have yet three other basic categories of causal relations. And what are the other three? Who knows? Kamma. Uh, yes, Kamma will play a role. Oh! The you know, basic categories into which causal relations fall. So the first one is a physical object. Uh, a physical object uh, leads to some mental object or mental you know, result. Uh, 
And then the opposite, indeed, a mental phenomenon may be the cause, and a physical object or a phenomenon may be the result or the effect. And then what else do we have? Yes, yeah, so a physical object leading to another physical object, right? And uh, the last one is mental, mental. There you go. So a mental you know, object being the you know, cause and uh, another mental object being you know, the effect or you know, the result. Now, briefly, a few examples. You know, one example, at least uh, for each one of these uh, you know, three further categories. Now, um, when it's hot here in the hall, so the heating system is switched on on top of uh, you know, this, maybe the sun shines, the windows are closed, you know, then you know, you'll be sitting there and what happens? Uh, you'll, you'll be sweating. And so then there's a natural you know, link or causal link between the heat and the perspiration. And uh, the perspiration happens all by itself. It's you know, caused by you know, the heat. Now, um, so in this, the heat is a physical phenomenon, which you know, in this relation is the cause or the condition, whereas the perspiration uh, is uh, the effect or the result, which is also a material you know, phenomenon. Now, the next category would be, or I'll give you one more example for uh, a physical object leading to a mental uh, object. Namely, uh, the pain uh, that we discussed uh, earlier on and increases more and more as you're observing it. And so, you know, so f at first there's the aversion, and then later on, an intention arises to shift the posture, if not uh, uh, even to you know, stand up, to get up. And obviously, there's a connection between the pain and the intention to shift the posture. Without the pain arising in the first place and getting stronger and stronger, there wouldn't be any reason you know, to uh, want to change one's posture. And here, too, you know, the pain is uh, the physical phenomenon, uh, which is uh, here the cause or the condition, whereas uh, the intention to change the posture or you know, to even get up, you know, this is a mental phenomenon, which would be you know, the effect or uh, the result. Now, in both of these two relationships, namely a physical object leading to another physical object and a physical object leading to a a mental object, is there any supreme being involved that is uh, governing things? Have you, any, have you, in your meditation practice so far, now already a week, have you seen, come across uh, any, any being there, any controlling agency? No? Jackie? No? Did you look hard enough? Maybe you didn't look properly. No, so, indeed, no, there is no, no, no supreme being involved in no, the picture. But then, uh, maybe did uh, things happen in a haphazard manner, without a cause? So, can one say, perspiration arises, so in the presence of heat, perspiration arises without a cause. Would this be correct? would not be correct. So now this then, the second wrongful assumption also doesn't work. And it gets defeated you know, through the observation of what truly is, namely physical and mental phenomena that are related to one another you know, by way of cause and effect. Now, um, another category is that of a mental phenomenon leading to or causing, conditioning, a material phenomenon. And so, um, a good example for this would be the uh, intention to start walking. 
So let's say you've sat, uh, you've sat already on a, a, a chair for uh, maybe yeah, an hour now, and, uh, <laughs> and then some pain, some you know, well discomfort arises in the buttocks, and it's getting too much, and so, you know, so maybe a certain you know, aversion is there. And uh, this then leads uh, to an intention to get up and uh, you know, sit on the cushion. So the intention, the intention is a mental phenomenon, and so this intention will then usually uh, lead to an activity, namely getting up and walking a few steps across and then sitting down. And um, so, in this connection, the intention is a mental phenomenon, which is uh, the cause and you know, the getting up and you know, walking you know, a few steps across you know, would be the you know, physical uh, would be physical uh, action, and so, you know, this you know, then. Uh, qualifies as the result or uh, the effect. <coughs> I'm sorry. And in this too, is there any supreme being to be found? Was there any supreme being that uh, made you? <laughs> no, you, no, you didn't notice. Okay. And uh, but you're coming across here now, walking across here. Of, did it happen without a cause, in a causeless manner? Uh, no. Neither that. So uh, we come again to the same conclusion, namely uh, that uh, the uh, phenomena, the mental and uh, physical phenomena as they're occurring, uh, can be or are related by way of cause and effect. And so then an example for the fourth basic category of causal relations. And this is a mental phenomenon is the cause for another mental phenomenon. Now, as you know, a variety of Objects occur at the six sense doors, and they're all competing you know, to be paid attention to. So, a visible sight wants to be seen, a sound wants to be heard, and a smell you know, or a scent wants to be smelled, and so, you know, then there's maybe a taste in the mouth that wants to be you know, known, and so on. Now. Then, what does the mind do? Does it uh, take in, what does consciousness do? Does it take in all objects at the six sense stores at the same time? Huh? Nope. It does not do this. But rather, it takes in one object at a time. And usually, the most predominant object and this requires a particular mental state, namely manasikara or attention, or if you like to, advertence. The mind needs to be, the mind or the mind will advert out of those six possible uh, objects to be seen, heard, smelled, and, and sensed. Um, it directs you know, the mind towards one. And let's say it's the visible. Uh, object. And owing to the presence of manasikara attention in you know, this field of competing objects, the seeing process takes place. Now, manasikara attention is a mental state, a mental phenomenon, and the arising of seeing consciousness is also a mental phenomenon. And the first one, attention, is the cause, whereas the second one is uh, the result in our causal uh, relationship or uh, link. And thus, again, in the case of uh, this uh, last uh, category, 
obviously there is no supreme being involved that is directing, okay, now go ahead and see. And now go ahead and do something else. There's nothing like this. Nor is the seeing process happening in a causeless manner. The seeing consciousness takes place because of the presence of some visible object, some you know, distinct, uh, stronger visible object, because of the presence of uh, you know, the eyes, the physical eyes, or you know, in Abhidhamma you know, language, uh, the eye sensitivity, and uh, the presence of light, and as we've seen, you know, the presence of the mental you know, factor of manasikara, attention, and uh, the seeing process uh, you know, will be there. So it occurs uh, owing to certain circumstances. So this causal relationship between mental and uh, physical formations very much affects uh, uh, all of our uh, experiences. And during a simple activity like the process of uh, changing from the standing posture into the sitting posture uh, is governed uh, by uh, such a causal relationship and uh, uh, vice versa uh, from the process of uh, getting up after having spent some time in a sitting, this too is suddenly governed uh, by some causal uh, relationship. And as one observes mindfully whatever is going on in the body and in the mind, one detects more and more of these causal uh, links and thus um, any kind of doubt with regard uh, to you know, the, um, the way formations uh, are caused, you know, this doubt you know, will be uh, overwhelmed or, 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 or overcome. Therefore, the, you know, this particular insight knowledge corresponds to the purification by overcoming doubt. Doubt in the Pali language is known as kanka, and kanka vitarana visuddhi is the name for it, the knowledge of, or the purification by overcoming doubt. So what this particular, uh, what the arising of this particular insight knowledge does is it helps to rectify a wrong view. See, as ordinary human beings, we run around with plenty of wrong views about uh, what is truly happening about uh, life. And because we have a number of uh, wrong views and are not even aware of them, we end up in in difficulties over and over again. And the meditation practice can be seen as a process that gradually replaces or substitutes one wrong view after another, and thus our understanding becomes much more realistic and really in tune what is happening uh, in uh, in life. Now, this then brings us to the conclusion Oh, wait a minute, there's still one more point. Uh, Namely, what about materiality itself and what about mentality itself? 
what causes materiality, what causes mentality? A question that is being you know, pursued in you know, the Abhidhamma or Abhidhamma Tasanga, the, um, the manual of uh, Abhidhamma. And uh, the causes uh, that are mentioned for you know, the arising of materiality are four, and one of them is ignorance, the other one is craving, the third one is clinging, and the last one is kamma, as uh, mentioned earlier on by one of the meditators here. And it is on top of uh, these, uh, nutriment or nourishment is uh, the condition um, of uh, the material body as it consolidates it. So, now, based on the four um, four causes, as given uh, just a few moments ago, on top of this, we need nutrition, and then you know, materiality uh, can uh, form. And as for the condition for the occurrence of mentality, it is given as certain uh, follows. In the Samyutta Nikaya, in a very succinct manner, due to the eye with which we see, so the physical eye, and to the visible object, seeing consciousness arises. And uh, there is no other supreme being involved in this process. Even if we try to prevent it from happening, it will still uh, happen as long as uh, the eyes are intact, the object is there, and uh, light is also there. And once a meditator has gained at least some understanding into this causal relationship uh, uh, with regard to to material and mental phenomena, uh, with this, a meditator will you know, then you know, be able you know, to you know, go on further in you know, the practice, and so, you know, then you know, some other things so, you know, will uh, arise uh, next. And one will you know, further also you know, understand. Now, for instance, how, how the arising of, or how you know, things are uh, connected by way of cause and effect when it comes to contact, feeling, and then craving. And we have... We have, let's say, some pleasant feeling that accompanies some you know, sense uh, impression. And this pleasant uh, feeling, since the mind relishes it, will then, in the absence of mindfulness, lead to you know, the arising of uh, craving. And should some sense impression be there, so contact is there, and this time it's accompanied by an unpleasant feeling, then there, <coughs> then there will be a craving to get rid of uh, the unpleasant uh, feeling and to have it replaced by some pleasant uh, feeling. So again, we can say feeling conditions craving. And in both cases, this applies. And furthermore, a contact takes place, so some sense impression is there. It's accompanied by a neutral feeling. And since this neutral feeling is somewhat peaceful, again, there is a craving for it. And so wanting to experience more of it. So in all three cases, is there 
in the absence of mindfulness, a strong link or a strong causal connection between feeling and craving. Feeling leading to craving and craving, again in the absence of mindfulness, leading to clinging and so on and so forth. Now, in our meditation practice, it's important to see these causal links as clearly as possible and unwanted or or, links like this connection between feeling and craving should be um, clearly perceived, and then with mindfulness, one should certainly cut it and not certainly let the craving nor clinging uh, arise in one's certain stream of consciousness. Now, let me conclude today's Dhamma talk by uh, wishing may. Much wisdom arise in your, or may much wisdom arise out of your Satipatthana meditation practice, and may it make it very clear how physical and mental formations are connected by cause and effect, and thus proving the point that physical and mental formations are not governed by some. Uh, supreme being, nor are they occurring uh, in a causeless uh, manner, and uh, equipped uh, with this uh, understanding of cause and effect, may you uh, then progress further in your meditation practice, and uh, eventually uh, may uh, the uh, out, may you gain uh, the state of peace that comes with the attainment of uh, Nibbāna, which is also said to be an unconditioned event. And this is it for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.